You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music in the 80s punk music meant following a strict formula but 30 years ago with its trailblazing album double nickels on the dime the minutemen threw out the rule book i'm greg cott and i'm jim deorgatis we revisit our conversation with minutemen bassist mike watt And Greg and I will review new releases from The War on Drugs and Pharrell Williams. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. listening to Sound Opinions, and that song is called Maybe Partying Will Help from the classic 1984 album Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen. It was recorded 30 years ago next month at the Radio Tokyo Studios in Venice, California. A great excuse, Greg, to revisit our conversation with the always entertaining motormouth philosopher Mike Watt. <laughs> Jim, the Minutemen were founded in San Pedro, California by Watt, drummer George Hurley, and the larger-than-life lead singer and guitarist Dee Boone. When they came together in 1980, punk rock was all about fighting against the norm, and yet there were all these rules about how a punk band was supposed to sound. And the Minutemen pushed all of that aside and incorporated jazz, funk, all these other influences into hardcore punk. And they helped build the DIY spirit of the early 80s when they coined that term Econo. Deep Boone died in a car accident in 1985, cutting the band's career short. But Mike Watt would go on to play with rockers like Eddie Vedder, Henry Rollins, Dave Grohl, and he's released three solo albums and spent last year touring with Iggy Pop and the Stooges. We sat down with him in 2011 to talk about the genre-blurring album Double Nickels on the Dime. When you went into the recording of, of this record, did you guys have this idea that, yeah, we're going to blow out the boundaries here a little bit in terms of what kind of music we play and how it's perceived, or was it... it just sort of happened that way. Uh, the Minutemen was a uh, kind of trippy situation because you're right, you're, we were playing in the hardcore scene, but we actually learned it in the 70s from uh, a band like No Mercy where there's a drummer and a singer and that's it, or the Screamers, they don't even have a guitar, or these bands we never seen from England where they were just sounds where they put P-Funk with Beefheart. And so when hardcore came and it was much younger people and it was more of a fast guitar those people from the 70s, a lot of them, especially in the Hollywood, they quit. Mm-hmm. So only the only people coming to the shows are these young people. So the context is kind of strange. Even though it's not that many years, it had changed. Now, Double Nickels, in uh, I think it's November of 83, we get together a bunch of songs to make an album with uh, Ethan James. We traded a song for his compilation. And he says, I'll do one free for you. Well, we put three together and kind of fooled him. Anyway, we liked the way he worked, so we got a bunch of songs together to make an album. Huh? Then the Hooskers come to town in December, and they make this is an arcade. They make a double album 
and we were like, whoa, we should have a double album too. (laughs) (laughs) So we wrote another batch of songs Mm -hmm. and and we record another. These were two-day sessions. Mm -hmm. And then we have the double album, you know, but we had no... They were two, two different ideas. We had to invent a thing to make because they had a concept, some young man in a, a video arcade thing mm-hmm. with quarters. When you dropped in these quarters, right? That, that's what Bob told me, something like this. Zen Arcade. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, ours were two worlds apart, but we wanted one too. So what I'm trying to show you is like we were very part of the movement, even though we were separate, like you say, because mm-hmm. we thought that was a point. Our band was supposed to have their own sound. We were very motivated by the cats, be it those people we didn't know in the 70s but going to the gigs and listening to records and then peers like Black Flag who's could do the meat puppets that we're actually playing with mm-hmm. you don't copy but you kind of inspire because of their own fine involvement in their own conditioned minds you need together But anyway, so we came up with this idea. We had to unite it somehow. Deep Boom was very upset at Sammy Hagar calling himself the Red Rocker. <laughs> because, like, he was supposed to be all rowdy and uh, uh, rebellious or something. Well, he but couldn't it, drive 55. Yeah, it was just about breaking the speed limit. And Deep Boom says, okay, we'll drive the speed limit, but we'll make crazy music. Mm-hmm. So this is where the title comes from. So Double Nickels on a Dime right. is a reference to I Can't Drive 55. But then we're thinking about double albums. I'm a Gumma by Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. where each guy's got a solo quarter of an album. So each of us is going to have a solo song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, And that's about it mm-hmm. as far as our concept. Mm-hmm. It was mixed in one night. Wow. Ethan James, yeah. We didn't trust herself. We thought we were too close. None of the Minutemen. We always trusted the knob man, either mm-hmm. Spot or Ethan. I ended up paying for the record. It was $1,100 altogether. Cost. Wow. Big piece of change for us, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was 45 me. songs. <laughs> I know, I know. If we evened it out per song, yeah. it's not that bad. It was, that was the difficult part, though, is how were we going to put it in order and somehow mm-hmm. have this concept, right? What I figured is, well, in those days, it's vinyl, right? So the needle's usually on the outside, so put the lame ones hugging the label. And what we'll do is we'll draw we'll draw straws. You know, we'll draw straws and pick. And the guys would pick their favorite songs would be on the outside. And then the ones nobody picked, that would go on side chafe, right? Right, mm-hmm. the fourth side. So Georgie gets first pick. And what's he pick? He picks his solo song. <laughs> okay. Uh, D. Boone got second pick. He got the, what I thought was our best song was anxious mofo for that time.
Georgie wrote the words, Dee Boone, the music. Dee Boone had this Econo guitar solo. And then I got third pick, and I got the Mike Jackson. I actually did write, send them that song. Political song for Michael Jackson for him to, to sing. sing. I never got a reply back. I just thought, <laughs> you know, the, man, the Minuteman message, if this band would do one of our tunes, I wasn't thinking about royalties or anything. I just thought it would reach. Because Dee Boone thought, you know, the whole idea of Minuteman with the words was thinking out loud. And this guy could get across these Three guys from Pedro thinking out loud. I, I know it was mm-hmm. kind of stupid thinking. But. Well, you know, there's apparently hours and hours and hours, if not weeks, of material in the Jackson archives. We may yet find out that he did. That his he did do a cover. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let, let's talk a little bit about that song, Mike. Yeah. It's, it's great. There's no other than the title. There's no references to MJ in the song. This monitor's a right with petition. Must look like a dork. The lines in here just quote a few things. The music drops out, and D Boone says, "I must look like a dork." If we had oh, heard... I got that from Cream Magazine. Yeah, there was a Lester Bang thing with Ig, mm-hmm. and they, you know how they bowled out a thing. Yeah, he said, "I must look like a dork." Mm-hmm. <laughs> the pull quote, right? Yeah, right? the pull quote. Right, exactly. If we heard mortar shells, we'd cuss more on our songs and cut down on guitar solos. Yeah, followed by a guitar, guitar solo. solo. Yeah. <laughs> So dig this big crux. So <laughs> what's going on in, in sort of writing this? Why did you think Michael Jackson should sing this? And, and what was it in this? Oh, well, he reached reach a lot of folks. Yeah. And, and then he would hear us thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. I was really trying to be clear mm-hmm. <laughs> about that. Like with the mortar shells, right? Maybe if you were under attack, it'd be a little different than living in a harbor town in the U.S., I was just the whole context meant a lot to us, I thought. Mm-hmm. This is what really impressed us about England punk. Just them singing their own accent, but singing about, yeah, we're a garage band. Like, they're, what's really going on with them? Before, we didn't know what words were for. They were like a lead guitar sound. You know, the smoke's on the water, the fire's in the sky. I guess they were actually being <laughs> literal, too. Yeah, that was about but a fire us, in Montreux. Yeah, yeah, we thought it was a bong or something. Well, I, I think it, it needs to be said that at that time, uh, you were coming out of that very commercial era, that 70s... Uh, arena you know, rock. Radio rock, yeah. arena rock. Yeah. To express yourself in this way, there was no hope for you. It was like, you're not going to get a record deal. Nobody's no, going to no. want to see you play. You yeah, had to absolutely. do it this way. You couldn't do it that way. Well, but you said the expression. We never thought of music as expression. We thought it was more like building models and you'd copy the record. This thing where, yeah, you had something to get out, that was a whole new idea for us. Even though we had been working out these licks trying to copy... This whole other angle about music where you're trying to express yourself was very new to us. Arena rock, you could never imagine yourself being that. No. Right. But in a club, when we first saw a gig, the first thing I said to D. Boone is, we can do this. So you were seeing these rock acts in these clubs, and you were trying to figure out what kind of sound you were going to make. Was jazz part of this yet? We had never heard jazz as kids. We thought they were punk guys that were older. The music was so wild, <laughs> it sounded like the stuff we were hearing at the gigs with the germs. Mm-hmm. I found out later this thing happened in the 50s, late 40s. It was a trip. And then, you know, Coltrane had been dead for like 10 years already. 
I just didn't I didn't know. We didn't know it was an emotional thing, and we wanted to be like that. One one dude we did know about though was Beefheart, mm-hmm. and and the Stooges. We knew about them doing punk music before they called it punk, and that surprised us. You know, punk for us at first was pictures. No, we never heard it, right? They were writing about it and stuff. And you, then when we heard it, it was it seemed like it was more of a thing in the mind. It wasn't really a style of music. It was like whoever was doing it, that was their version of it. We liked that. Well, what you just said is <laughs> it, really interesting to me because there was this rule book, it seemed like. that There was the punk hardcore rule book. Oh, yeah, yeah. That and came. you guys didn't seem to – you never bought the rule book. <laughs> no, because I told you it's weird because we were festered in the 70s. Oh, festered. Mm-hmm. Uh, incubated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clumsy wouldn't work, and so and then, but then the context is hardcore because those it was so quick, man. That those people burned out so quick, mm-hmm. and then it was these young people from the suburbs playing this rule book thing. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, somebody told me there's Broadway play a Green Day now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. Yes. And when yeah. I played the hot topic thing at the Warp thing, I thought we were going to discuss. They told me it's a store at the mall where you buy punk clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't discuss intense things. <laughs> this is what the hot That's topic what it's become, is. Yeah. You know? it's, yeah, yeah, isn't that? I would have never guessed that. It was so outside. I thought there'd be a little fringe thing always. Whatever, things move and happen. The context we were in, actually, double nickels. I had just read Ulysses, mm. right? James Joyce. Yeah. There's a many. There's a song on there. June sixteenth. Uh, yeah, tell me about that. Ulysses. Inspiring it was a heavy song. book. I mean, that's a... That's a I don't heavy think book. anybody expects a, a rocker, let alone a punk rocker, to be reading Ulysses and yeah. writing a song about no, it. No, I mean, I, you have to take a class and have a teacher <laughs> lead you through it, see, and you still don't get it. I got to give credit to this book somehow without being all out trying to impress people like uh, oh I read this and you didn't so I just put Mm -hmm. the date and so people who did read it would know kind of Mm -hmm. and uh, also it's full of word 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 I thought well we'll make this instrumental with no word and I try to get the feeling Mm -hmm. the word thing was trippy for us we thought it was really about being yourself in front of people they weren't gratuitous you really had to put up and not just use cliche You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here with Mike Watt, uh, Greg Cott, and Jim DeRigatis. We're talking about Double Nickels on the Dime, the Minutemen's great 1984 album. Mike, I wanted to follow up on that. It felt, when you would hear you guys sing live, or even on this record, it felt like the words were almost being made up on the spot. Yeah. It was very spontaneous. It was literally like that stream of consciousness as opposed to just, oh, it's a song with a verse and a chorus and a bridge and yeah. all these structured parts. I mean, I had this image when I was scanning, you know, that the credits of this album of this group of stoner beatniks <laughs> sitting around, you know, much like Kerouac, Burroughs, and Ginsburg, you know, just riffing and, and, and coming up with these words. And it was this avalanche of words, just like it was this tornado of music. You know, we got the idea from Wire. Because we want, we felt a little tainted because them dudes you could tell were learning right when they were doing. There's great danger, danger for the longest ranger town. 
But we owed so much to the, the, the Wire band for enlightening us. We felt safe about putting the lead guitar solo after. And we had to make fun of that. Mm-hmm. We had to make fun of ourselves in a way mm-hmm. to somehow find our own voice. Because we could, if you have respect for Wire, you don't copy them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you guys weren't copying anyone, and that's the thing that was so mind-blowing about it. You, you know, you weren't going to be accepted instantly because you were different. What was the inspiration you took? You said, okay, Zen Arcade was a huge influence. To do a was, double out. Was your mind blown by the music on there, or was it just the concept? I mean... We thought that was Husker music. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to copy it. Brothers of ours in spirit, we were inspired by uh, their audacity. When you went to a gig, they never played you the stuff you had on a record. They always played you the next record. They were an album ahead. So everybody, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nobody knew the songs. So talk about unmersh, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could play them all the next record. have more on Double Nickels on the Dime with Minutemen bassist Mike Watt in a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we review the latest from the man in the big hat, Pharrell Williams. Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and you've been listening to our conversation with Mike Watt of the Minutemen. That's two beads at the end from the band's landmark album, Double Nickels on the Dime, which turns 30 years old this year. Now, Double Nickels proved that this band wasn't afraid to break the rules. You hear them boldly blending these styles punk, rock, even jazz. And then there's the bare bones lo fi production, or what they used to call jamming Econo. 
But pioneering as their sound was, the Minutemen were still products of their time. And on Double Nickels on the Dime, they give nods to some surprising rock contemporaries. Returning to our 2011 conversation, bassist Mike Watt told us why the Minutemen chose to pay tribute to some unlikely groups like Steely Dan and even Creedence Clearwater Revival. Creedence was like, D. Boone said, people should listen to his words. Mm -hmm. So we'll play it like Curtis Mayfield would play it. Don't look now. Yeah. And it's, but it's recorded at the Club Lingerie up in Hollywood with all these people yammering. But Carducci did that. Creedence was really heavy to us uh -huh. without uh, knowing it in a way. This idea of Curtis Mayfield, play it like Curtis Mayfield. This was the whole thing, this juxtaposition thing, us learning uh, deeper truths. Somebody once said the only thing new is you finding out about it. And this is where the Minutemen was. It was like the whole thing op was open to us where you could actually make up your mind about things. Deep Boone says we're going to divide the world into two categories. There's going to be gigs and flyers. <laughs> and everything that ain't the gig is a flyer. <laughs> yeah, you could do like stuff what, like this. You understand? What did he mean by that? Because the gig, the punk gigs, was such an, a mind blow to us. It seemed like there was nobody in between you and the listener. Mm -hmm. No filters. So a record, an interview, a picture, all these things were to get people to the gig where you had the most control. Okay. Now I've I've, I've learned that a record actually is work uh, in the noun. It's here after you're gone. Yeah. Like children almost. And people ask me why you do what you do now. It's all from them days. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it was just turned on to us, you know? And then we just got into it. So the Creedence all of a sudden, John Fogarty's words, really intense, especially with Dee Boone. So that's why we did that there. The Steely Dan, we didn't know what they were singing about. Katie lies. You can see it in her eyes. Imagine my surprise. I kind of thought, because you could write your own trip into it because you don't know what they mean anyway, you know. <laughs> Is there gas in the car? Yeah, there's gas in the car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Through me, I gotta confess. I, no. was, I was all the way into you guys, but what are they doing covering Van well, Halen? It's like when the replacements covered Kiss. It's like no, 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 no there's nothing but, cool about Kiss. No, but we put it in the wire. This idea of that wire could purify anything, even something like that, <laughs> by making it so econo, yeah, that it would turn it into a whole another thing, you know. Mm -hmm. But we just we were looking at it through our own experience. What wire did to us, yeah. You were kind of performing a service, though, for the youngins at the time who were unaware of some of the stuff that came before. 
and yeah. maybe pointing okay. them back in that direction, much like the Stones did for the blues men back in the 60s, I would say, you know, same kind of thing. But at the same time, Mike, you yeah, had yeah, yeah. a history lesson part two, yeah. which is basically the story of your band. Yeah. A great, great song. It spawned the title of Michael Azarod's book, oh, Our yeah. Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah, and uh, you name-checked John Doe and yeah. Bob Dylan and Richard Hell, yeah. Blue Oyster Cult, Joe Strummer. Yeah. You were sort of throwing a little bit of a little love back at your forebears, saying, you know, we didn't invent this stuff. It's, it's coming from, from, a, from a place. Our band of scientists rock. But I was E. Bloom and Richard Hell, Joe Strummer and John Doe. Me and Mike Watt playing a guitar. actually wrote it for the young hardcore guys who thought we were Martians from Planet Jazz. Yeah. And, and I was trying to say, you know, in a way, we're just like you. This mm-hmm. is me and my buddy. We're just trying to play and make a band and find our voice, just like what you're tr- trying to do. Mm-hmm. There's scary things about not having an orthodoxy. Do, am I right? Do I belong? Even though that's what brought you to the movement in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's so trippy, some of the inherent con- uh, contradictions of our scene, because it's about not fitting in. Mm-hmm. Then you create something to fit in. So I just said, well, here's me. My, this is the most genuine thing. This is why I, I do it. I'm not even a musician. I do this to be with my guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe you can see something in that. of man I work my way backwards using cynicism the time monitor the space measurer I want to get back to the musicianship on the record because it's extraordinary you on bass D Boone on guitar Hurley on drums primarily Were you all self-taught? Because, you know, I thought yeah. these guys are like the best players I've ever heard, you know, at there the time. A, it was like, you know, they're playing on a jazz level even though they're playing punk rock. Yeah. Well, uh, there was a hippie guy named Roy Mendez Lopez who lived in his car who showed us how to copy off records. Mm-hmm. That was the culture. You just wanted to learn someone else's tunes. Right. We didn't know one guy who wrote his own songs. His big thing was practice, practice, <laughs> which we found out about Coltrane. was like 10 hours a day. So we got into that kind of stuff. Maybe that's how we... Uh, Learn some stuff. But it was all self-taught. Nobody was yeah, teaching you guys. No. You guys were learning off records and teaching yeah. each other basically how to play. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I tried to take music in school, okay? I was in seventh grade, and just after I met D. Moon, and they gave me the clarinet, right, because I want to play sax like there. And after 10 weeks, uh, Mr. Luna, his name is Mr. Luna, Mr. White, you know, you try hard, but... <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to have a music <laughs> career. Well, uh, he had a very gentle way of pu- oh, putting it. God. He says, stop wasting your time, stop wasting my time, stop wasting our time. Jam and Econo. Yeah. It's a phrase we've heard several times from you, Mike. Yeah. Explain the Econo philosophy. Because well, it's, it's a, a unique take on DIY. Econo meant, with whatever you have, you was you don't worry if you got the right things. Which, coming from working people, is very pragmatic. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't have to have the right guitar. Very you don't happening. have the big amp. Yeah. You, big don't have time. To, right. you don't need anything except the will. 
Because it seemed like, again, this thing, uh, this, uh, the arena rocket turned into a kind of royalty thing. You needed certain kinds of things. The other thing I wanted to ask was about, you, you were talking about not fitting in in so many ways. D-Boom was a big man. Yeah. He didn't look like a rock star. And no. then here he is fronting this band. Was he daunted at all? I mean, you talk so much about these humble beginnings in the bedroom. Then yeah. suddenly he's up on stage. And, yeah. and, and you know, as big as he is, there's nothing to hide behind. But, or, or did he just take to it? Did he embrace it? The only cat I've seen even close to his work ethic is Ig. Where, where we're going to do this gig. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really intense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think because D. Boone took blows because of uh, yeah image and stuff, I'm going to work this, not better than you, but I'm going to try my hardest to play this guitar and dance around and sing out my thoughts out loud to you. I'm going to show you. Very, very earnest. A lot of times we're coming up to play the gig and the roadie's pulling him off the stage. Sometimes me, uh, because they don't believe we're in the band. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Looks like the road crew. Yeah. D-Moon did not live to see the alternative explosion of what you know a basic tenet of azarod's book which greg mentioned before our band could be your life you know it is that you guys and the hooskers and the replacements paved the way for this explosion of commercial success and alternative rock and suddenly the whole jam and econo thing is left out everybody wants tour buses again like yes everybody in the band everybody in smash pumpkins got to have their own tour bus did something get lost from that era i think Pat Boone sold more Tootie Fruities than Little Richard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it's an exactly new kind of no. phenomenon of humans doing this. Well, you were talking before about impermanence, that, that it was all about the moment and, and the flyer and the gig, right? Yeah. But now, obviously, there's, there's this uh, added heaviness to double nickels on the dime. When you listen to this record now, do you think of your friend, D. Boone? Does it bring you back? Is this the fitting memorial? Is this the piece of work? that stands for him. Yeah, I think uh, it was the high point of the Minutemen. Without ever being intent, it just happened. I don't know, maybe, yeah, things have an arc. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never thought about that, Jim, about that. But I, I think it's the best record I ever played on. And when I hear him on there, it's like he could jump out of the speakers. He's very alive to me. I, I can... Uh, yeah, sometimes it's the best way to think of him because of him playing and yeah. us playing with him. And he made music and, and things big for me and alive and happening. Working. Perspective-wise, what impact, if any, do you think that album's had on, you know, the kind of music that you appreciate? Do you see the impact at all of that record? I mean, it, it, to my mind, it still stands out as something really different for that time. Oh, yeah. So where do you think the impact has been, if any, if any, over the last 20, 30 years? Well, our idea was back then, you know, if bozos like us would do this, maybe other people would try and find their thing. It would make it safe for going, like people said, make it safe for going crazy. Mm-hmm. 
I think in, in some ways there's stuff like that. Like we were just using just like meat puppets and Husker and Flag guitar bass drums. And you could come up with different sounds and stuff and just go for it. It has been an absolute pleasure talking about Double Nickels on the Dime, one of the great albums, certainly of our era, Greg. Uh, thank you, Mike Watt, for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and I review new albums from Pharrell Williams and The War on Drugs. But first, we want to hear from you. What was your reaction to Double Nickels? And who do you hear jamming Econo today? Call 888-859-1800. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that's a track called Hunter from the new Pharrell Williams album, Girl. Pharrell Williams, out of Virginia, he's 40 years old. It's hard to believe he's 40 years old already. because he Seems, seems like, like he's been he's, with us forever. <laughs> in some ways, and it seems like, you know, he still seems so youthful. You know, everybody remembers the buffalo hat he wore at the Academy Awards the other night. Got auctioned off for $44,000. I know you put in a bid, Jim. I'm sorry that uh, you it. didn't get it. But he was known, you know, for several things. He was in this group, N.E.R.D. Nerd, that made a handful of really interesting records around the turn of the uh, millennium. But what really made his mark was the production team that he formed with his childhood friend, Chad Hugo, called the Neptunes. They've had 24 top 10 hits during the uh, 1990s and 2000s. We're talking about songs like Nelly's Hot in Here, Britney Spears' I'm a Slave for You, Snoop Dogg's Drop It Like It's Hot... Now, Pharrell reemerged in 2013 in a big way as a singer, played a key role in two of the year's biggest singles, Daft Punk's Get Lucky and Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. And now we have a new solo album from him. It's only his second. It's called Girl. Here's a track from it called Marilyn Monroe on Sound Opinions. Different.
Marilyn Monroe from Pharrell Williams' new solo album, Girl. Everybody forgets, 2006 was Pharrell Williams' first solo album. It was called In My Mind. Do you remember it at all? Barely. It was awful. Mm -hmm. This is not that bad. Musically, Pharrell is on the top of his game. The vintage Jackson 5 bounce meets the Daft Punk maximalist over-the-top super disco postmodern for the new era, <laughs> right? But he really let me down lyrically. You know, there were a lot of interviews. He had a set rap, which he gave out to every interview who talked to him. There's an imbalance in society, in my opinion, and it's going to change. A world where 75% of it is run by women. I want to be on the right side of it when it does. However, he's not. He felt he had some penance to pay for blurred lines, and he said he was going to make an album about women, but he didn't. He made an album about girls, and it's not R. Kelly lascivious, right? But he's talking about how he's a taxidermist, and he's going to put his romantic conquest heads (laughs) up on the wall. He has nothing to say, and it's really kind of disappointing. And again, I'm not being politically correct here, but I remember talking to him in 2002, and at that point, I asked him, I said, what's your dream? Who would you most like to work with? He said, I'm going to give you three names, and they will blow your mind. Faith Hill, Courtney Love, and Bonnie Raitt. Those are all strong, unique women. And what Pharrell could have done if he worked with them, or what Pharrell could have done if he wrote songs about women like that, gets me really excited. As this is, it's just an excellent uh, musical pop album that has no core in the center. So it's a try it record is the best I can do. I'm not going to stand up for Pharrell Williams' lyrics at all. He's not a very good lyricist. He proves it once again on this record. When he tries to get profound at the end of the record, it's equally laughable. You know, I'd rather be a freak than not be unique. The individuality makes life better. I mean, come on, you know. You're preaching that, but you're really not showing it on this record. On the other hand, I do find that even some people are dismissing a track like Happy as, well, it's just a trifle, and I go... But listen to the trifle. Listen to what he does with those hand claps, the way he's orchestrating the background voices. It reminds me of some of, quote-unquote, the more trifling tracks from, like, a Stevie Wonder. He's got that sort of ear for arranging stuff that just makes it sound 
not only terrific and danceable, but there's more to it than initially meets your ear. So that if you pay attention to to the arrangement and the production at all, you're kind of blown away by the musically, talent this guy musically has. to be sure. But Stevie, at his most trifling, still was bearing part of his soul lyrically. Oh, I agree with you, I'm not, and I'm not in any way comparing Pharrell to Stevie as a solo artist in the substance of what he's trying to do. I will say that Pharrell is a brilliant producer. He's bringing together and updating those classic R&B production factories, Motown, Muscle Shoals, Prince at Paisley Park, and bringing it in, bringing it forward in a way that is really irresistible. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the weirdness that he brought to Nerd. Where is the Pharrell, I'm off to planet Mars, and I'm going to do some really tangential stuff, bringing together these genres in a way. But I think riding on the crest of the success he had with those two huge singles last year, for Daft Punk and Robin Thicke, this is kind of a logical progression from that. It's an irresistible record. Not a buy it, but it's a try it. That is a little bit of Red Eyes, a track from the new album by The War on Drugs, Lost in the Dream. Greg, this is album number three for this band. Uh, apparently in 2003, there was a party and two guys found themselves in the corner, Adam Grandusiel and Kurt Vile. We know Kurt Vile. We've had him on the show. He's a king of the lo-fi garage bedroom emporium recording artist. They wanted to see what would happen if they combined Sonic Youth at its dreamiest or My Bloody Valentine in the English shoegazer bands with a very Dylan-esque approach to singing and writing lyrics. And it took them a couple of years, but in 2007 they released an EP. Then the band that they'd put together all fell apart. Vile went off to do his own thing, and it took Grand Ducille a couple of years, but he came back in a big way with a record called Slave Ambient in 2011. Really set the underground on fire. People were very excited. He put a band together. They toured, and then he wanted to record this band after it had gotten tight on the road. Two years in the making, a little more than two years, in Philadelphia, in New York, in North Carolina, in New Jersey, and now we have this record, Lost in the Dream. What does it sound like? We'll talk about that in a minute, but here is a song first, An Ocean in Between the Waves by the War on Drugs on Sound Opinions. Run away, I'm a Been working every day I watch you as you
That's An Ocean in Between the Waves from the War on Drugs, the new album Lost in the Dream, album number three from this Philly band. That song in particular I love on this record, that sort of reverby guitar. It kind of intimates that it's going to be a surf music song, but it's sort of way (laughs) trippier than any surf music that I've ever heard, very tripped out. And the way it escalates, the way it builds over time, picking up momentum as those waves start to roll over you, it's, it's very cool. There's 10 tracks on this record, Jim. Seven of them are more than five and a half minutes long. The guy's in no hurry to get to the end. And it was forged because, you know, the War on Drugs had become a band on the road. This record was recorded over a period of time when the War on Drugs lineup was really starting to coalesce. And, and you can hear the product of the interaction between these musicians. The songs are allowed to breathe. There's lots of reverb, lots of the sense of wide open space, these very gauzy textures, but a little bit more sense of song as well, how to sort of dramatize those elements. I wish the album was more consistent in that regard. I think there are a few tracks on here that do tend to wander a little bit. I love the progression he's making as a songwriter, and I think on the next album, hopefully he'll keep this lineup together and and they'll really nail it. As it is, this is a very good record, but I'm not going to give it a buy it. I, I think it's a try it record. Wow, shocked I am. Weren't you just talking a couple of weeks ago about listening to records on your headphones at 2 in the morning? that's good for that. You're not going to find anything better. And there is a serious uh, progression. For one thing, Granducille is pushing his vocals front and center more. He's not doing that shoegazer thing of putting it behind the mix, of burying it. And what he's singing about is, uh, I saw a quote from him, it's about life, it's about having close friends, it's about helping each other get by. He's talking about what it's like to be 20-something and trying to create art and have close friends around you and and to try to live a life uh, that that doesn't fit conformity. I love that. And it's great. It's a great mix. You know, rock critics get a lot of guff sometimes for these formulas, right? But really, as formulas go, Bob Dylan fronting Slow Dive or any of the shoegazer bands, I mean, that's just like, that's that's perfect. I mean, that's brilliant. Why did nobody not do that before and bring something original to the mix? It's definitely a buy it as far as I'm concerned. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play you a song we cannot live without. Greg Cott, it is your turn. What are you playing for us? Thank you, Jim. Uh, Our conversation with Mike Watt uh, inspired this choice for the Desert Island Jukebox this week. You know, he talks about a lot of the bands that they were influenced by that were, you know, not predictable choices for a punk rock band in the early 80s. And one band that would come up in our conversations over the years was Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm. The boys in the Minutemen loved Blue Oyster Cult. You can imagine these these teenagers growing up in California listening to these records. And they went to a couple of shows, apparently. They, they would see the arena rock shows, and they go, we could never be that. But they loved this music to the point where the song I'm going to play is one that has remained not only in the Minutemen set list, but Mike Watt continues to perform it to this day. He loved it so much. And I, I can understand why they were drawn to this group. Blue Oyster Cult out of Long Island, New York in the late 60s, originally known as the Soft White Underbelly. 
there was an interesting mix of talent here. You had this pretty good hard rock band, but they were masterminded by a producer and manager named Sandy Perlman, a former rock critic. Don't hold that against him, but he was sort of an intellectual. (laughs) He's now a professor at uh, McGill University in Montreal. Among the lyricists for this group were one, Patti Smith, before anybody knew who Patti Smith was, and Richard Meltzer, one of the original rock critics. In fact, Watt and uh, Meltzer were friends. I mean, they were, Watt loved that sort of beat style Mm -hmm. that Meltzer was bringing to the rock vocabulary of the critic. He was the guy who taught me how to read Meltzer. He says, you got to read Richard aloud, man. That's how you get it. It's like Burroughs. It has to be read aloud. So this sort of intellectual heft was kind of behind some of the lyrics. And Meltzer would describe Blue Oyster Cult as this is really hard rock comedy. There was a subversive element to what they were doing, even though they were touching on some of this, the harder edges of the metal scene. Some people were seeing a Velvet Underground influence in their music. You can hear it in this song, The Red and the Black, from their second album, Tyranny and Mutation. What what an album title. And, And they were playing with these concepts. You know, as far as I can gather... This song is about some outlaws with tendencies towards sadomasochism running through the wilds of Canada, staying in luxury hotels, and they're on the run from the Canadian Mounties, hence the uh, the red and the black. Mm. That was the uniform of the Canadian Mounties. So you get all these elements in there, plus you get a great Buck Dharma, Donald Roser guitar solo. There's a little bass in the mix where you can sort of hear a jazz feel. You can understand why the Minutemen were picking up on the musical elements and also sort of the beat poetic bent to the lyrics yeah, well, uh, a that was a- lyric. appealing, yes. So here it is, the speed of punk rock and the heft of the literary illusions on the red and the black from Blue Oyster Cult on Sound Opinions. Canadian not to be a piece false word, red and black, it's their color scheme.
That was Blue Oyster Cults, The Red and the Black. Nice choice for the Desert Island Jukebox. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, one of our favorite shows of the year. We're going to go to South by Southwest, the music conference in Austin, Texas, and we're going to come back with some bands you absolutely need to hear. As always, Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded Mike Watt. Sound Opinions was produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. And if there's any way to buy a hat like Pharrell's, we definitely each need one. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is Brad Page calling from Manchester, New Hampshire. Love the show. Just calling in response to the uh, Sly and the Family Stone episode. Sly and the Family Stone are just one of my favorite bands. The music had such positivity, such joy in it. You asked, how do we hear that in the music that's out today? What is the influence? And frankly, I don't think there's enough of that influence in the music today. Somehow we got to a point where it's just not cool to be that joyful and to be that positive and to have that kind of spirit in the music. And man, I miss that. All of those songs just make you feel good. And couldn't we all use a little bit more of that? Mr. Pete calling from Havertown, PA. Just listened to the Sly and the Family Stone episode and wanted to chime in with my earliest memory of Sly and the Family Stone, my favorite song, If You Want Me to Stay. And believe it or not, I first heard it as a cover done by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And now I know the Red Hot Chili Peppers have been pretty cheesy and tolerable a lot longer than they were rad, but they turned me on to some good stuff like Sly and the Family Stone and Stevie Wonder and whatnot. I'm also calling for a second completely unrelated reason, well not totally unrelated since you guys were talking about kids movies and your picks for the Oscars. I have two four-year-old daughters, so I've been seeing a lot of kids movies like the recent Lego movie. I was happy to see the music was composed by none other than Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. You know, his soundtracks from the Royal Tenenbaums all the way back to, of course, the Devo years. He's a genius in my mind, and with the recent passing of former bandmate Bob, 
I feel like it's time, fellas. You should dedicate a whole episode to Devo, without a doubt. John from Philadelphia. Love your show, but boy, have I got to disagree with your comments regarding the U2 song from the Nelson Mandela documentary. I know you get goosebumps when you hear that song. I know it's not them blazing a new trail from songs they've written in the past, usually with love in the title also, but nonetheless, I think it has a different groove and feel to it and conjures up good memories and images of the man himself. And I think Mr. Mandela would have approved of the song. So you should, too. Keep up the good work, guys. But be a little nicer to folks sometimes, including you, too. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.